You're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. The very first national elections in New Zealand occurred in 1853, when there were only 5,849 registered voters. In order to be registered on that electoral roll, voters needed to be male, British subjects and property owners. In addition, they were almost exclusively Pākehā. Over time, the franchise was extended to Māori and women. Today, the current electoral roll numbers more than 3 million people. In this series, we feature presentations which cover a broad range of stories from Aotearoa New Zealand's evolving systems of governance, going all the way back to 1853. Our next speaker for today is, uh, is Dr Grant Duncan. He's an um, Associate Professor of Politics at the School of People, Environment and Planning at Massey University. Well, thank you everybody for attending and, and thank you for inviting me, Shaina. It's just a great pleasure to be here and to uh, share uh, with a New Zealand audience this controversial proposition, why New Zealand is not a democracy. So I'm just going to get straight to my point, just so that you understand where I'm coming from. So uh, first of all, I'm arguing that New Zealand's political system is representative. Uh, it's originally a system of representation. Now, if we look at the practice and concept of representation over the centuries, uh, it's not inherently a democratic system. In fact, there are times when systems of representation were preferred precisely because they were a way of avoiding democracy, avoiding rule by the majority. What we've done, however, quite successfully in New Zealand and, and most other countries that we call democratic, is that we've made this representative system less undemocratic, or if you prefer the glass half full version, we've made it more democratic. The other good thing um, in regard to New Zealand is that dissatisfaction with what we call democracy, that's why I've put democracy in inverted commas there, dissatisfaction with democracy is comparatively low in New Zealand. So for example, there was a big international survey that came out last year, uh, or early this year, prior to the, the outbreak of the pandemic, uh, which showed that uh, dissatisfaction with democracy had been increasing in many countries, but not in New Zealand. So uh, in actual fact, trust in and satisfaction with our political system is maybe not the best, but there's plenty to be dissatisfied about, but on the other hand, it's not as great as it is in other countries. So uh, that's a, a piece of good news that we can hang on to and get started with. So political trust in the New Zealand system is relatively high, uh, doesn't mean that we can't do something to make it better. So my question then might be, well, how democratic really is our system? Are we satisfied with it the way that it is? Or would we like it to change some more, change somehow to make it maybe more democratic? And now I'm leaving this question as a question for the end that, that you can help me answer. I don't feel that it's my job to say what our system should be like. It's up to us collectively to make those kinds of decisions. 
So um, what I need to do then is define my terms. Uh, what am I actually talking about? What is, what is democracy? Um, well, if we go back to ancient times, to ancient Athens, uh, democracy meant rule by the people or rule by the majority of the people. Now, we often think, of course, of ancient Athens as being the birthplace of democracy, but let's be honest, uh, it was really only, they estimate, no more than 20% of people who lived in Athens or Attica, which is the whole city-state, including the, the rural area around Athens, there was really no more than 20% of that population who were active participants in their so-called democracy. So women were excluded, foreigners were excluded, and of course, slaves were excluded as well. So those ancient societies were slave societies, and those who were able to participate were mainly slave owners. So they had other people doing their daily work for them, doing their labor for them, and they were able to participate. So it was only a small minority of free Athenian men who were able to engage in what was called democracy or rule by the people. Democracy is, of course, a Greek word. So direct rule by the majority goes back to uh, ancient times, but of course, well, majority of what? <laughs> In this case, a majority of a minority uh, were actually doing the ruling, and it was basically the free males. Now, one of the things we also know about the ancient Athenians, particularly the great philosophers, and I'm thinking obviously about famous names like Plato and Aristotle, they didn't like democracy. They felt that Democracy was dangerous. Uh, it uh, meant that the majority would rule in their own interests. It was disorderly because there were, everyone felt that their own opinion was uh, of equal worth with other people. So there was lots of debate and dissent and discord. Also, they worried that it was prone to being taken over by powerful demagogic leaders uh, and could eventually, according to Plato, descend into tyranny. And so the great philosophers of the time, who both, by the way, were elite uh, aristocratic males, were uh, not in favor of, of democracy. They, they wanted a different kind of political system. So that's just to go back to ancient times and think about where does this word democracy first come from? I've also got here, of course, a famous quote from Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address in 1863 where he talked about government of the people, by the people, for the people. And I'm sure that's something you've heard before. So the great thing about this statement is that Lincoln is saying that their, their republic, its basic legitimacy is rooted in the people. It is a thing of the people. The, the, in Roman, ancient Roman terms, the res publica, the affair or the thing or the, the state that belongs to is of the people, ancient Roman idea. And in the uh, American Republic, this idea is revived, and it's stated here very clearly by Abraham Lincoln as a principle of democracy. Another way of defining uh, democracy, a more recent definition, comes from uh, some contemporary political scientists, Urban Arty and Warren, and they talk about democracy where all affected by collective decisions should have an opportunity to influence the outcome. So all affected by collective decisions should have an opportunity to influence the outcome. Now, um, 
I don't know about you, but I've had some experiences recently where I've consulted with people in my local community about decisions that are affected, that affecting them, and in particular in relation to local government decisions, uh, where a lot of people have expressed a lot of dissatisfaction that the community is not being heard, uh, it's really difficult to influence the development arm of the Auckland Council, Pānuku, uh, and the consultation processes are not very effective, and I happen to agree with them that on a couple of occasions the consultation processes were skewed towards the decision that the powerful organisation, council organisation, already wanted. Uh, so if we say that democracy is about all affected by collective decisions should have an opportunity to influence the outcome, well, these people may be having some opportunity to influence the outcome, but the feeling I get is that often there's a great deal of frustration in the community where decisions are being made over their head in a way that they feel is not democratic. And that's, I'm talking here about local government decisions uh, where we ought to be able to have a much more direct relationship and, and, and some greater influence over what happens in our local government, let alone at a national level. So once again, this is a question for individuals to decide for themselves. Do we feel that the way things actually happen in our society, the decisions that are actually being made on our behalf are being made in a democratic fashion? What kind of opportunity should we have to influence outcomes? How much influence should we have? Those are open questions. So um, moving along then, um, when we talk about democracy, practically speaking, what we're normally meaning is a system like our own, where we have free and fair multi-party competitive elections, and we're electing people to representative assemblies. So there's that word representation coming up again. So when we go to vote uh, in this coming September, we'll be voting for representatives. We'll be voting for members of the House of Representatives, which is the key institution of our parliament. And so we'll be voting for the people who will sit in the next parliament as our representatives. And we do that in two ways, of course, as you probably know, we vote for our local representative and we also vote for the political party that uh, we feel best represents our values and interests and, and policies. Really important to a democracy, of course, is freedom of the press and freedom of political opinion. It's most important in a democracy that we can express our differing views. Also, of course, we expect there to be peaceful transitions of power. Most importantly, the armed forces should stay in their barracks and not intervene. Uh, we've not had that happen to us in, in New Zealand before, fortunately. But certainly peaceful transitions of power we tend to take for granted in, in New Zealand. So if an incumbent government loses the election, there's a change of government, they pack up their things, they leave their offices in the beehive peacefully. They don't put up a fight, they don't try to resist, they don't try to hang on to power. Uh, there was a wee problem with that in 1984, but other than that, uh, we've pretty much had a good run of peaceful transitions of power, most important to a democracy, that the outcome of the choices made by the, by the people is respected by those who rule. Now, um, those elected, the elected, are trusted with only limited powers. So this is most important too in a democratic, uh, what we call a democratic society. 
By that I mean uh, limited and not just in the scope of their powers. So for example, members of parliament may not influence what goes on in the courts. We have an independent judiciary. So that separation of powers is most important uh, in a system like ours, but also limited in time. So there's always a sunset clause, so to speak, uh, in any election. You, you can't rule forever. Eventually, the people can hold you to account if they get tired of you, if, they, if enough people get dissatisfied with the government, uh, it'll eventually be voted out of office. So there's no unlimited powers, either in terms of the scope of the powers or in terms of, of time. So those are some of the key, we can add others, you know, uh, to that list, of course, but those are some of the key features, practically speaking, of a system that we call democratic. Now, so what do I mean by representation? Representation is something different. So uh, it overlaps with democracy historically. But really, as I said, my main point uh, to begin with was that representation is not inherently democratic, but our system is a representative system. So what do I mean by representation? Now, for a definition of representation, I can go back to the 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Um, who uh, isn't really famous for, for um, advocating democracy at all. Um, he uh, believed he had a powerful theory about sovereignty uh, in his own lifetime during the English Civil War. He um, hedged his bets between absolute monarchy and rule by parliament. Uh, so he said that the sovereign could be either individual, a king or queen, or it could be an assembly. An assembly could be sovereign. But whether it's a monarch or an assembly, that person or those people represent the nation, represent the people. So what did he mean by representation? So a person may, he says, represent himself or another, and he that acteth another is said to bear his person, to act in his name as a representative. Now, some of the examples that Hobbes gives are, for example, um, a lawyer, a, a barrister, or an advocate represents a person, acts in his or her name. So we might, for instance, imagine a barrister acting for, on behalf of a person in court. In that situation, normally, the barrister uh, is acting on the instructions of the, the client. So the client makes direct instructions to the barrister to represent him or her in a particular way, provided it's within the law. The other important thing to remember here is that in Hobbes's time and going back to the first English parliaments in the 13th century, that the early parliaments were hardly democratic from our point of view. Uh, parliaments were first assembled by monarchs for the purposes of gaining the consent of the powerful and wealthy to raise revenues for waging war. So, the people who would be summoned to uh, assemble as a parliament would be uh, the nobility, the senior clergy, the bishops, the knights, and wealthy landed gentry who were summoned because they were basically the taxpayers and they were the people who had to wage war on behalf of the king or queen. So uh, the first parliaments, and certainly in, in Hobbes's time, parliaments were not democratic as we would understand them. They didn't have the kind of broad representation of the people. 
and they didn't have the universal franchise that we now have. So a good thing that's happened in the course of history is that the universal adult franchise has made representations less undemocratic. So instead of just having people who are powerful and wealthy uh, representing whole communities on their behalf, uh, we now have a situation where we have a universal adult franchise, which is more democratic. But basically what we're doing is we're entrusting a tiny minority, 120 odd people, uh, to make law on our behalf and to form governments on our behalf. And if you put that all together, those executive and legislative powers, that's significant power being wielded on our behalf uh, by our representatives. But however, I say the good thing is that over time we've introduced a, we've reached a stage where we have a universal adult franchise, which makes this representative system less undemocratic, or if you want to put it in a glass half full sense, it's more democratic. So what's good about representation by election? Well, first of all, election gives some sense of popular consent. Uh, if we participate in elections, we're consenting to the system. And to some extent, even if we don't like the outcome, we're living, at least living with the outcome of the election, uh, hopefully. <laughs> uh, also, of course, there's accountability. We can vote them out at next election if people get particularly dissatisfied. And um, we'll wait and see what happens in September. Also, of course, there's an expediency factor to representation by election. It allows you to vote and forget. Um, it means basically that um, the average person doesn't have to get involved in the complex, voluminous uh, nature of day-to-day -day lawmaking. So um, if you haven't done it before, I recommend that at some stage, just um, go to the Parliament website and have a look at the amount of legislation that's currently before the House. Laws that are being passed on our behalf and go just go through the list, just browse through the list and, and look at how much legislation is currently passing through the House. And you'll probably be surprised. You'll think, oh my gosh, I didn't know about a lot of this law that's being passed on our behalf. We all know about some of the uh, critical or uh, controversial pieces of legislation. We get to vote in referenda, referendums, whichever you choose, uh, at the next election on two important legislative matters to do with uh, cannabis and with euthanasia. So occasionally we, we do directly uh, decide uh, as to whether certain kinds of legislation should go through. And many pieces of legislation, we may be aware of most of it. If you look at the list of current bills before the House, you'll find probably you'll say, gee, I didn't know about all of that. So um, Originally, anyway, the, what the point that I'm making about representation is that originally the elect were the elite acting on behalf of the majority. And indeed, if you go back and read some of the original writing about representative government, you'll find that people saw representation as a way of avoiding democracy. So who am I talking about here? James Madison, one of the founders of the American Republic, talks about uh, representation or elect representation by election as a means by which the majority of people would choose their betters, would choose society's elite to govern for them. Similarly, 
John Stuart Mill, the great British philosopher, very influential in New Zealand in the 19th century. Uh, he talks about avoiding <laughs> rule by the majority through elections where the, the people or those who were allowed to vote, because in those days it was only property owning males who could vote, where those who were permitted to vote would vote for, as he puts it, their betters. People who were cultivated, educated, and who had the, as he saw it, the knowledge to use their better judgment on behalf of the people to uh, act on their behalf, not at their behest. So it was many of the early theorists about political representation and elections were actually seeing representation of a way of preventing rule by the majority, preventing democracy, in fact. Um, so um, just let me um, quote a particular critic of uh, representation, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He says he, he's against representation. So here we have Rousseau writing in the in the 18th century, you're probably aware that Rousseau was a big influence on the French Revolution. Um, he goes so far as to say that the English nation, quote, thinks that it is free, but is greatly mistaken, for it is only so during the election of members of parliament. As soon as they are elected, it is enslaved and counts for nothing, end of quote. Now, I think he's going too far, honestly. <laughs> um, I don't think that the English nation were being enslaved by the system of representation. But I'm just presenting Rousseau's counter opinion here precisely because we need to look at things uh, from the other point of view. Um, he says we shouldn't give up. We shouldn't delegate or deputize our lawmaking powers. We should all be uh, participating in the lawmaking process of society. So he goes, as I say, he has a very strong opinion uh, about against representation. Um, and uh, I, I don't, which I don't necessarily agree with, but nonetheless, as I say, we need to look at the, the, the counterpoint, the counter opinion. So representation is not necessarily democratic, was not necessarily uh, intended to be democratic. And I'm gonna leave it up to you to judge whether our present system is democratic enough. Uh, to be uh, to be considered democratic. So let's look a little bit about New Zealand history. Um, I'm just checking the time. How are we doing? Um, 1835, the Declaration of Independence, uh, uh, signed by many of the northern tribal chiefs, uh, established a runanga or an assembly precisely for the purpose of making law. Now that runanga never actually assembled. I guess probably because it didn't fit with traditional tikanga. However, um, in 1840, the Treaty of Waitangi permitted kawanatanga or government, um, but not a representative assembly. So there's no mention of lawmaking or representation in the treaty. Uh, I imagine that what the signatories to the treaty might have thought would go on was that you know there was a person who would be a governor, Captain Hobson. Uh, he had uh, around him when he first became governor, uh, an executive council and a legislative council. But at that stage, there was no representative assembly and the treaty is silent 
on the question of a representative assembly or any lawmaking assembly of any kind. So where do we get the House of Representatives from historically? Well, we get it from the 1852 Constitution of New Zealand Act, which is an act of the UK Parliament. So the UK Parliament passes law that says to the colonists, the settlers, the British settlers in New Zealand, that they can form their own representative assembly, and from that they can form a responsible government. That is a government that comes from the assembly and is accountable to the assembly. So in 1854, the first parliament consisting entirely of colonists, in other words, none of the members of that first parliament was born in New Zealand, uh, assembled in Auckland. There was a property qualification uh, for eligibility to vote up until 1879. So only property owning males could, could vote. Um, in 1867, we had the Māori Representation Act, which introduced four Māori seats for what uh, was certainly an underrepresentation of Māori, proportionally speaking, at that time. And in 1893, women uh, got the vote, and since then we've had universal adult franchise. At that stage, it was from age 21, now it's 18. The other important historical development that we need to uh, consider here is the emergence of political parties from 1890 with the formation of the Liberal Party. And of course, with mixed member proportional MMP since 1996, we have the party vote. So the political party is now embedded in our electoral law. But originally, uh, voters were voting just for their local representative. By about the middle of the 20th century with the victory of the first Labour government and then the formation of the National Party and then in the post-war era with the pendulum swing, shall we say, between National and Labour. Voters have generally accepted that they're voting for a political party, or sometimes they see themselves as voting for the leader of that political party as a contender for prime minister. And so political parties have now become a kind of mediating force in representation. The political parties put forward the candidates for the seats in the House of Representatives, Along with that, they present us with a policy manifesto, which tells us about their values, the direction that they'd like the country to go in in general, but also usually quite detailed lists of the sorts of things that they would like to change or to keep in place, their policy manifesto. So it's the political party now that's very much taking that role of representation because individual party members really very much have to toe the party line, don't they? They have to uh, act as part of a team. They have to uphold the policies and values of the party, even though at times, privately, they might disagree with some individual policies. So representation is a kind of political trust. So every three years, we elect a local representative and a favoured party to assemble in the House of Representatives to make law and to form a government on our behalf. And the most important phrase there is on our behalf. Now, who is this we? Well, we means a bit more than two thirds of the eligible population, 18 plus. And I say a bit more than two thirds because roughly that's how many of the eligible population actually vote. If you look at 
voter statistics, voter turnout statistics, they're often a proportion of the registered population, but not everyone registers. So um, our voter participation rate has gone down as low as two thirds of the eligible population roughly, particularly in 2011 when we had a low turnout. Now, if you don't vote or if you're a child and you can't vote, um, you're represented anyway. So not voting doesn't mean you're not represented. This, this House of Representatives is acting on your behalf even if you don't vote. And here's a nice quote from uh, a former MP, uh, Rex Mason, who was a prominent figure in the first Labour government in 1937. I just happened to come across this quote handily. He said, Parliament is a trustee for the people. And I think that expresses it really well. The nature of political representation in our system is that it's largely based on trust. We are trusting and we are entrusting lawmaking and governing powers to our representatives to act on our behalf. So um, <clears throat> a little bit more about our system, government formation. This is a, a, an area that people are often quite confused about. So let me just um, uh, clarify this. So we vote for representatives. Those representatives form a government after the election. That was particularly plain to us, I think, in the 20, after the 2017 election. Those members who coalesce to form a majority in the House form the government. In other words, the fundamental goalpost for being eligible to form a government is that you can prove that you can defeat any motion of no confidence in the House. Now, that may be a single party, or these days it's more likely, of course, to be a coalition of parties. Technically, we don't vote for governments or prime ministers. I know that in everyday discourse, people say, I'm voting for so-and-so as prime minister, or I'm voting for this government or that government. But technically speaking, we're voting for representatives as individuals and parties, and they form a government on our behalf after the election. Part of the problem in New Zealand is that the pathway from the election result to the swearing in of the new government is neither chartered nor particularly democratic. And I think that was really made clear after the 2017 election when uh, the leader of a party that had basically got 7% of the vote was able to uh, not just determine the outcome to some extent, but also to determine the process of negotiation. He had all of the bargaining chips on his side of the table, and he was able to uh, determine the process of government formation and how the talks would be carried out. And I, I personally think that's something that we really need to think about reforming. So um, furthermore, I think we need to think about executive power. So in New Zealand, a government uses its majority to pass law and to approve finance for programs that its own ministers will control. Now, you could say, if you were really harsh, uh, that this is a massive conflict of interests and it doesn't respect the separation of powers uh, in the way that you have, in, for instance, in the US Constitution. So we don't, in New Zealand, fully clearly separate executive power and legislative power. So uh, the government and its ministers and its backbenchers are all sitting there with a majority in the legislature and they're able to introduce law, pass that law, 
introduce appropriation bills or the, the finance bills uh, for programs that then those ministers will go back to their offices in the Beehive and control. Now, a majority in the House could re potentially repeal acts that are constitutionally foundational. And the examples that I'm thinking of most here would be the Electoral Act, the uh, Constitution Act of 1986, and the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act or the Human Rights Act, for example. The majority in the House could potentially repeal those acts or substantially uh, amend them in ways that maybe is, doesn't fully respect our human rights. Uh, we trust them not to do that. Uh, and so far, we've been pretty lucky uh, that sort of thing hasn't happened. But constitutionally, it can happen because we don't have an overarching constitutional document to prevent that from happening. What we have seen is, particularly recently, uh, the House has passed necessary emergency laws that suspend normal laws in favour of executive powers. Now, to give you some examples, the emergency, uh, the Epidemic Preparedness Act of 2006, the Health Act, the Civil Defence and Emergency Act, all of those, of course, as we're very well aware, have been used to great effect to restrict our civil and economic liberties quite severely uh, in, in recent times. Another example is following the first major uh, earthquake in Canterbury back in 2011. Our parliament very rapidly, within one day, had passed emergency law that passed over significant powers to the executive to suspend laws in order to get things done as necessary in, um, in, in Canterbury. Now, those kinds of necessary emergency laws we live with in a democracy provided, one, that they're necessary for the, for the purposes, uh, secondly, that they're temporary, and thirdly, that they're proportional to the actual emergency. And under those conditions, I think generally in a democratic society, we can accept that there may be, for expediency, uh, it may be necessary to, to suspend some laws and pass over special executive powers in order to get stuff done. Um, but it just goes to show you uh, what uh, our House of Representatives can do when it's necessary and that they do on our behalf. Uh, so far, I'd like to argue that uh, in New Zealand, we've been fortunate that governments have respected uh, human rights, have respected our uh, desire for governments to act on behalf of the people and not in some kind of um, tyrannical or, or self-interested way. But ultimately, it's a democracy. If it's a democracy, I have to let you be the judge of that. And we can have a discussion about those questions uh, in, in a while. Are we satisfied with this? Is New Zealand's present representative system with responsible government a satisfactory compromise? Um, or should it somehow be made more democratic? Uh, and that, as I say, if, if we're thinking in terms of democracy, that is a question for the people themselves to, to address. Absolutely fascinating, thank you. Um, funnily enough, four minutes in, Diane's comment was, Grant, it seems to me in our MMP elections, 
we recently have tended to be governed not by the majority of people but by the choice of party that a minor party choose to be allied to and therefore decide the government i.e winston peters who choose which party with which he would ally new zealand first and certainly he's a has that title of kingmaker does he not well, yes, and I have to say, first of all, that a similar thing can happen under the old FPP system as well. Um, so let's remember, for example, that in 2015, just off the top of my head, when Theresa May called a snap election in the UK, mm. and she ended up losing her majority, it looked like a good idea at the I time. I think that was 2017. Okay, um, thank you. And um, she had to rely on the... Um, Democratic Unionist, tiny little party, Democratic Unionist party, yeah, to form right. a government. So, I, I, I first of all, I hear what the what the question is asking about MMP, but I just want to say first of all that that kind of problem is not due totally to MMP. It's more likely to happen under MMP. But go back to the 1928 uh, Hung Parliament, for example, um, to see a, a a doozy of a Hung Parliament back then and a similar worse problem uh, possibly but anyway getting back to my point uh, or to the question about um, yeah, the, where the bargaining power is held in this case by a party that not only did Winston Peters lose the seat of Northland during that election his party declined in, in, in party support and therefore had fewer seats in the house than they did before the election so a party that technically was in decline in terms of public support ended up with all the bargaining chips on their side of the table. Now, the Greens could very easily have completely blown that away by saying, we're willing to negotiate with both Labour and National. But they didn't take that. And there's an obvious political reason why the Greens were not prepared to undercut Winston Peters' bargaining power, um, because they had campaigned to change the government and their supporters would have been, I think, very dismayed if the Greens had opened up negotiations with National. But it's worth remembering that a National Green coalition would have formed a majority. They just didn't take that, that, that step. So, well, and equally, National didn't wish to take that step from what I remember them stating. But they also yeah. weren't interested. Yeah, it was a two-way. I don't right. want to work with you. But wasn't if you just, yeah, exactly. But if you just look at the numbers, that was that was technically a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. So we ended up with a situation where uh, Winston Peters had the all the bargaining power and used it to the hilt. Um, you know, said I'll go fishing for two weeks and, and and wait for the final results and so forth, which did make a material difference. And um, and then, but yeah, I, I mean, I guess my point is this, that our constitutional conventions in this country basically tell us that the, the, the goalpost, uh, we, we, you know, from the Governor General's point of view, who swears in the, the new government, from the Governor General's point of view, the goalpost is that you have to be able to prove to me and to the New Zealand public, so that it's transparent to everybody, that you have the numbers in the House. And, um, in between those two points, the election result and the swearing in, it's basically open slather. There's no rules um, other than common decency. Um, <laughs> and even mm. then. Um, so I, I mean, and there are countries where 
the constitution allows the the governor general or, or monarch or whoever it happens to be to have not a decisive role but a role in managing the process and this is something that i think we could change where we could say well look um we need to map out the process where there's where it's uncertain on on the election results alone as to who governs um where there's no obvious coalition or no single party majority uh, and, and negotiations have to begin. It's a common thing in, in countries all around the world. Um, so th th there, is a, there, is, there are some conventions around the process that happens from A to B. Now, we have no such conventions. Mm. And in other words, I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't have to be that way where uh, uh, one person who's a powerful leader of a minority party gets to have so much control over the process let alone the outcome and i must say it was it really was i think a remarkable moment in new zealand history where we have photographs to prove it where you could see um jacinda ardern and, and grant robertson squealing with delight when they saw on tv uh, Winston Peters announced his decision at the same moment that you and I could have been watching. So it was extraordinary. And I think, as I say, we could, we could if, we, if we had the will, the political will, change that process. Um, there are quite a few questions, but I would like to just follow on with something. Do you think that having a House of Review and, have, and having two houses within our parliament system rather than the one would make a change to this issue? It certainly could. We, as you probably know, we used to have an upper house of parliament, the Legislative Council. It was it was appointed, not elected. Um, we, uh, yeah, a, a bicameral or, or or two house parliament is is pretty normal. There are a number of other countries around the world. They're mostly small countries that have unicameral parliaments like ours. Uh, certainly, an upper house would change things. Uh, not necessarily for the better, though, because I think that you know you have to be careful how you arrange it, um, because uh, it, it can end up just being a logjam for um, legislation. Where uh, Italy had this problem, where the two houses just back legislation back and forth between one another, and you don't get any change. Um, however, it does also prevent rapid. Uh, change with lack of consultation and lack of consideration mm. and so yes it can be a good idea I just wonder whether New Zealanders would be happy with the proposition of having more politicians um, <laughs> um, but we still have a legislative council chamber in in the houses of parliament so the room is still sitting there <laughs> <laughs> so that's something we can allow for I, I um, as an Australian by birth and someone that has an interest in politics on both sides of the ditch um, I can think of instances in Australia where the exact same thing Diane raised of a minority party having mm. sway uh, mm. did that in the Senate far, many times in Australia and equally was to the dismay of the population. So um, I'm not I'm not sure it would fix it either. And yeah, and whether as a right. smaller country we need it. Yeah, that's right. So I yeah. So I think that if if, if your main concern is about a minority party like New Zealand First having that balance of power and undue influence over the outcome in terms of government formation. I don't think that, don't blame the electoral system because it could have happened under FPP. Don't blame the unicameral parliament because it can happen in a 
bicameral situation as well. What we need to look at is the constitutional conventions around government formation processes. And so I'm going to lead to, um, I'm not necessarily going to ask the questions in order because of this. So um, Philippa's comment is, should the current three-year electoral cycle change? Because I wonder about that power process. That, that's what, uh, funnily enough, I had the thought the same thing. Yeah, interesting question. I mean, going back to the 19th century, there was a big debate about having annual parliaments, <laughs> uh, elections every year. Oh. Um, and um, we've ended up with three yearly parliaments. Uh, that's relatively brief, internationally speaking. There were, so I just can't remember when, but at, at some stage quite a while ago, we had a referendum on four years. Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, yeah, that and was. that failed, I think. Sorry, I've just, I, I should have spotted that up before I came. But yeah, I think um, the problem with the three yearly parliament is that it's very difficult for a government to get much done. Mm. And they're either getting their feet under the table at the beginning of the term or they're, they're having to scale things down as we approach the election. Uh, there's, there's really only that year in the middle where a lot of uh, activity, real activity gets done. So um, I'm not sure whether the questioner is wondering whether we should have longer or shorter parliaments, I presume probably longer. Um, but uh, again, I guess uh, these days people would insist on a referendum um, for that to happen. Um, it's, as I say, such a referendum has failed before, uh, but I, I do think there is possibly some sense in it. Personally, um, as a person who likes elections and... You <laughs> 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 can say no more. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, so um, Beverly's asked, do the Maori seats breach the principle of democratic equality? Uh, not necessarily, um, because, I mean, I hear, I hear what she's saying, um, because they're, they're a separate thing. They're not unequal in the sense that they have the same numbers. They're not, it's not a form of gerrymandering uh, or anything like that. Um, but I understand people's concern about having a separate Maori role uh, based on um, uh, ethnic or Maori descent is, is the term that the Electoral Commission uses. Uh, I think roughly fifth at the last option 52 percent of people who were registered as maori descent chose to go on the maori roll mm. so not all people of maori descent are on the maori roll uh 48 percent as i recall have chosen to go on the general role uh, so maori themselves those of maori descent get a choice uh, does it breach the the principle of um democratic equality in the sense, I, I presume the questioner is meaning in the sense of one person, one vote. Well, no, we still have one person, one vote. And it doesn't mean that anyone's vote is, somehow carries more weight uh, because you're on one, one role or the other. Um, it's not totally out of line with the UN Convention on, the, uh, on Racial Discrimination because the UN Convention does allow for temporary measures to rectify past injustices and you could argue that that's what the um, Maori role partly achieves. You can also argue of course that it's um, it's consistent with the Treaty of Waitangi, some people do argue that. Um, it's neither consistent nor inconsistent with the Treaty of Waitangi because people who are opposed to the Maori role point to Article 3 whereas those who are in favour of it will point to Article 2 um, and so 
uh, once again, we're back at square one. Um, so no, I don't necessarily think it does. However, I, I mean, I understand that there is some discomfort with the existence of the Maori role in the, in the country, yes. I think listening to um, Dr. Jim McLoon's talk, I think it was his, but it might have been the day before. So my apologies if I've got the wrong speaker. You could almost argue the way they were structured initially was very undemocratic because it wasn't really fair representat representation at the time when they set the numbers up. Hmm. And I don't know whether that's given us a, a legacy effect today. And maybe there is some level of undemocraticness about the number of electorates. Uh, yeah, well, some people say that there aren't enough Maori electorates. Some people say we shouldn't have any at all. Um, as I say, I don't, I don't, I mean, clearly the number of Maori electorates is not in line with the proportion of Maori in the population, but that's because almost half of people of Maori descent don't go on the Maori roll. So it is controlled now by, there are the number of seats that reflect the number of people within the yeah. electorate. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. that's right. And so it wasn't no, to start with, yeah. yeah there, there's no gerrymandering, mm. put it that way. Yeah. Um, there's still basically the same population size. So in terms of the, the weight of your individual vote, it's more or less the same. Um, so I don't think that's so much the problem. I think, uh, but also I think you're going back to the 19th century, there was a problem and people argued about this problem at great length that the voting methods and eligibility were different between the two different roles. And that was a problem for a long time. Mm. Um, but that's basically been resolved now. Um, and so I, I, I don't see it as being a problem in terms of the basic principle of one person, one vote. Uh, but I think that there is a discomfort about having um, a divided role based on ethnic heritage. Now, um, look, there are, uh, my view personally is that provided Maori still want to go on that role, they get an option every five years after each election, provided enough uh, people of Maori descent want to remain on that role, let them remain on it because it doesn't ultimately affect, uh, in, in terms of weighting, uh, my vote as a non-Maori. Can I just point out too that it's, it's in the interest of neither Labour nor National to do away with the uh, Maori role and it's obvious in, in, in the case of Labour but if, if you ever went into a, a National caucus room and you said let's, get, let's abolish the Maori role, um, you'd very quickly have a number of uh, provincial MPs holding on to marginal provincial electorates saying, no, don't do that, uh, because they'd lose their seats <laughs> at the next election. It's um, ever, ever thus. Um, yeah. Randolph has asked, how do we assure a free press as in international pressures for corporate monopolies in journalism and media outlets and interpretations of popular ratings drive a more novella type content rather than hard hitting investigative trained journalism? Uh, gee, I wish I could answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I wish we had an answer to it too. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah look, I, all I can do is say I hear what, what the question is, is about. Um, unfortunately, I can't give an answer as to how we do that um, other than um, <laughs> other than trying ourselves to be the best possible consumers of news, but we're somewhat powerless as individuals, aren't we? Um, but um, I mean, look, 
uh, all I can say is, is to say this is, this is an issue that I didn't come prepared for and it's a bit outside of my area of expertise, uh, media, corporates and so forth. But um, I do what I can as a political commentator to try to be balanced and to be fair. Um, I notice sometimes that precisely because of that, uh, I, I don't get quoted. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, sometimes I do. So um, I think it's incumbent on people like myself who do have some public voice to be fair, impartial, look at both sides of the question and, and try to help people to understand properly the, the context and the, the, you know, the institutions and the, the values that are at work. Um, but yeah, look, I, I, I feel, um, look in dismay too at the, uh, the clickbait uh, phenomenon, um, the, the lack of investigative journalism the low quality of a lot of our journalism and I often talking to reporters and I feel for them too you know because they are you know I have calls from from sometimes from reporters who clearly are under pressure of time they're often now quite young because the older ones um, aren't being hired because they're looking for people they can hire on lower wages they're clearly under time pressure just to get a comment and um, I feel that your yeah, newsrooms at the moment are really under a lot of pressure. Yeah, it's, we need to be, we need to keep better informed, as you say. I think that's, the, I certainly find I listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot of reports like yourself rather than listening to the TV sound bites or the uh, yeah, follow, follow the podcast Talking Politics. Mm, mm. And there's a couple of good ones in Australia as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so the last question, because we need to kind of move on, is, and that's just rolled off my screen, Philip has asked, are there any governments worldwide that have introduced retrospective constitutional documents that work well? We have been fortunate, but fu the future may judge current emergency powers otherwise. Uh, yes, uh, yes, we can <laughs> have a constitutional document. We're one of only three countries that doesn't have one. Um, Australia, of course, uh, adopted their constitution uh, due to federation in 1900. New Zealand was invited to join that constitution. Um, we chose not to, um, no offence or anything, but... <laughs> um, right. uh, yeah. So yes, we could. Um, we could do that. I mean, I personally, I believe we should. Um, Sir Geoffrey Palmer has been kind enough to draft one for us. Um, but part of the problem will be, uh, and one of the reasons why I think politicians, when they've looked at this question of a constitutional convention uh, and a constitution writing process, is that politically they put it in the too hard basket because they realise that if we do go down that track, we're up for some very, very difficult arguments, um, particularly around the place of the treaty in relation to the constitution the role of the courts um, in terms of making judgments about um, the constitutionality of laws. Yeah. And of course the head of state is the other biggie. So yeah. in principle, I would like to see us write a, a constitution. The political process of getting from A to B fills me with horror. <laughs> yeah, and maybe we just don't need more horror right now. Not right now. Yeah, no, um, I'd just like to, some, Sue has said, a very thought-provoking presentation, Grant. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. 
You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud or see the Auckland Library's website.